Welcome, everyone, to episode 29 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and like every time we've done this little show since literally this time last year with me, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, it's officially our anniversary episode. That's right. We're one year old today. We're talking about the Golden Globes again. How does it feel to have officially been doing this show for a full year now? It feels great, Scott. I gotta, I gotta be honest. You know, a lot of things have changed in the last year, but a lot of things have also not changed. Uh, chief among them being the Golden Globes picking mediocre films to win their uh, biggest awards. I guess last year we did have three billboards winning, uh, which, which I guess counts for something. But um, you know, I guess we've seen uh, how, how ever changing the world of film is over the past year uh, in terms of you know a lot of things we saw with with representation uh, in, in 2018, but also we've seen the other side of it, how some things, uh, you know, will always stay the same, it seems. Uh, and that's award shows just torpedoing their credibility by uh, by picking uh, mediocre films uh, as usual. But th- that's a, uh, a minor negative in what has been a fun year of doing this show. And uh, yeah, looking forward to what 2019 has to hold. I, you know, I was just going through the list of movies coming out in 2019 the other day, and man, there the, it's going to be a lot harder for me to make my most anticipated list this year than it was last year, just because there's everything is coming out this year. I mean, even in addition to the big budget movies and stuff, there's a lot of smaller movies which I'm also really interested in. So it, it's going to be a great year, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I I totally agree. I think that I think actually, I mean, besides. Avengers Infinity War last year. I'm not sure like what big budget films I was like really pumped for. And, you know, there was a bunch of smaller films that if you go back and listen to that particular episode of the podcast, you can see that I was excited for and I think delivered for the most part on. But this year, it, it feels like the big the big films are some of the ones that I'm most excited about. You are, of course, the, the two obvious ones, which we'll jump into more in more detail on, you know, another podcast later later on is Star Wars Episode Nine at the very end of the year. But then, obviously, sooner, coming a little bit faster at us, we have Avengers Endgame, which, you know, if you believe that everything that's been said, you know, they're only using the first 15 minutes of the film for the trailers. I don't know if you if you saw that, Scott. That, that was uh, some news from Kevin Feige on the red carpet last week at the Golden Globes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's going to reshape the future of the MCU, right? And, you know, we have other MCU movies coming out, but... Uh, we're going to learn a lot about what the next phase and what the next kind of, uh, I guess, part of the series is going is going to be like at the end of Endgame and who who's left after after that movie is going to really reshape that universe. I, I've heard a lot of talk about Fantastic Four maybe being the center one of the centerpieces of the next phase of you know MCU you know second generation so to speak. Of, of course, the, I think originally Guardians of the Galaxy might have been one of the one of the headlining units there but that's kind of up in the air with James Gunn's departure and they might be looking for some new blood to freshen that up and another another reboot of the Fantastic 4 um might might be might be in store I've heard rumor that 
you know, having someone like Silver Surfer and Galactus as sort of the Thanos of the second of era of the MCU could, could be what we have in store. But that's all exciting to me. And, and then to your point, I think there's some smaller films, and not necessarily indie, but not your big blockbuster hits, right? I, I know that we're both excited about Knives Out later in the year, which is Ryan Johnson's next film. But we'll, we'll get into all that on a future podcast. I've probably spoken too much already. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's interesting that you mentioned the Fantastic Four thing. That's not something that I heard. I, I, it, to me, it will really depend on the director because, you know, the last Fantastic Four movie had an amazing cast. I mean, with both Michael B. Jordan and Miles Teller, like that's about as good as it gets in terms of young actors nowadays, uh, but was completely failed. Um, I think probably because of, you know, the people behind the scenes who were involved. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously we haven't had a good Fantastic Four movie yet, so uh, would definitely be down for one, but got to get the right people involved. And I hope Marvel will not try to mess around this time. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I think with every. I don't know what they had in store. I mean, again, these these are all like very, very speculative rumors. Not even like, I wouldn't even say that any, any of this with particular confidence. It's just theories that I've heard that uh, made sense to me. But I, I agree totally. You, you got to get the right cast. And if they weren't planning for this being the, already, then it's going to take a little while to get that off the ground. Like it, the Fantastic Four could be one of those kind of phase two sort of things that, that you get. It could be like a Guardians of the Galaxy from phase two kind of entering entering the scene and becoming an important part of the MCU, but didn't appear until several years into the MCU. Good news is, is that I trust, I trust Kevin Feige and, and Marvel and Disney to take their time and do things right. Unlike some other uh, cinematic universes, but you know, <laughs> I think maybe that's a, a conversation to continue in an, another time. And we might as well uh, get started on what we came here to do today. So without further ado, let's get to the globes. Scott, last Sunday night, we had the 76th annual golden globe awards put on by the Hollywood foreign press association I know that you and I were texting throughout the show about things we were happy about to the point that we even said a pretty late point in the show that we were pretty pleased overall with how things were going at the Globes. Uh, you know, with with some things we'll get to later, we were particularly pleased about. But you know, again, who was taking who were taking home the awards, the movies that were winning? Uh, granted, we there were moments, of course, that we all thought certain movies should win over others, but we were generally overall, I think, pretty happy. And and then the grand finale came, of course, and. Why don't we start there, probably with the biggest winner of the night, not necessarily in terms of awards, but just in terms of uh, underdog factor. And that is, uh, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody, which took home Best Actor Motion Picture Drama for Rami Malek and then Best Picture Drama immediately after. Why don't we get this out of the way early, Scott? What are your thoughts on Bohemian Rhapsody taking home these two big prizes at the Globes? Well, you know, it's a new year, and so it's a new me, and I'm going to just try to find the silver lining in everything. Um, you know, everyone knows that I that neither of us were the hugest fans of this film, although it does have virtues, certainly. But certainly among the nominees for Best Pic- Motion Picture Drama, you know, it certainly didn't did not deserve to win this award. I don't think there's any denying that. But I think the silver lining here is, and I mean, look, you know, I said it in the intro, these award shows have basically lost all credibility over the years. I'm not talking about the Golden... I'm not just talking about the Golden Globes. I'm talking about the Oscars as well. I mean, in in terms of, you know, the films that they have chosen to honor, you know, for the past, you know, know, let's say 20 years, um, people just don't take these awards as seriously as, you know, these awards would like to be taken. uh, Because, you know, a lot of times it comes down to politics and who pays the most money, who campaigns the hardest, 
um, you know, a, a variety of factors that are sort of arbitrary in terms of, you know, when compared with the quality of the film. So, you know, all of this, it, it, when Bohemian Rhapsody wins, you know, it, it's sort of a, a hollow victory in some ways because, you know, we, you have to take a step back and say, it's just an award show. These award shows, you know, have been doing this kind of thing for years. But, you know, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to play the game, right? We're going to take these award shows seriously. And the Oscars, of course, is the more prestigious of the two, if you, you know, when compared with the Golden Globes. And I think that the silver lining here is that, believe it or not, I think Bohemian Rhapsody's chances to win an Oscar have, have basically gone down the drain with this win at the Golden Globes uh, because there was so much backlash to them winning at the Golden Globes. And Oscar voting did not begin until the day after the, Gold, the Golden Globes. So when those Oscar voters went to the ballots, you know, to cast their ballots for what movies they want to see nominated, they what they have fresh in their mind is all of the backlash on Twitter and, and elsewhere about Bohemian Rhapsody winning Best Picture. Uh, because, you know, th- you, there are a few critics you can pick and choose who did enjoy the film and did, you know, did have it on their lists. But the overwhelming majority of critics and even, you know, the casual movie fan like the two of us um, were were pretty outspoken about the fact that this movie should not have won uh, Best Motion Picture Drama. And I think that the Oscars voters are definitely going to have that, you know, in their head um, when they go cast their votes. Um, And so, you know, I do think Bohemian Rhapsody will certainly be nominated for a lot of things. But I think that um, Bohemian Rhapsody, as well as the winner for Best Comedy or Musical, which we'll talk about in a second, I think both of these movies have generated such backlash that it's, uh, you know, I struggle to see them winning any Oscars, which kind of is exciting in a way, not only because, you know, they don't deserve to win Oscars, but also because that means the Oscar field is sort of wide open at the, at the moment. Like, I think we, we can point to a couple of films, which maybe we can say are, are still front runners in the Oscar race, but I don't think either of the movies that won the top prize at the Golden Globes are going to win Best Picture or are going to win many awards at the Oscars. So it should be a wide open race going forward. Honestly, I I don't think the Golden Globes has really changed anything. Yeah, I I think I agree with that for the most part. I was listening to people over at Collider all week uh, sort of dissect, I guess more at the beginning of the week, dissect what happened at the Golden Globes. And there were varying opinions on what they thought it, it meant for the Oscars, but ultimately, I think what they what they came down to is that really it doesn't mean that much at all. And if anything, the most compelling argument that I heard was that if it, if anything, to your point, it, it probably hurts Bohemian Rhapsody. They, there wasn't as much talk about Green Book, which, like you mentioned, we'll get to more in a second. But basically, the argument is you know the Oscar voters and the HFPA are completely different bodies. There's no overlap, to my understanding. And so what that means is that it, it's not like people who voted for the Hollywood Forum for the Golden Globes are going to have any influence uh, or, or voting power when it comes to the Oscars. And that's a very basic point, right? And then furthermore, it's like 100 people in the HFPA who are voting versus closer to, what is it, 9,000 or 3,000? Like, actually, I can't remember what it is right now, uh, that are voting for the Oscars. Much larger Yeah, it's, it's just a much larger number. And uh, therefore, if, you know, if you're campaigning, uh, I forget the, the studio who, who was behind Bohemian Rhapsody, but you know, if you're that studio... And, you know, I think it's it's 20th Century Fox. If it's if you're 20th Century Fox, you have to convince, you know, that many more people, which is, I mean, that number, again, larger, much larger for the Oscars than it is the HFPA. 
uh, and you have to win over a lot more people. And I think just the larger that number is of voting members, the harder it is that's going to be for a movie of the quality of Bohemian Rhapsody to come out on top of the Oscars. Because, you know, as much as I enjoyed that movie and as much as I enjoyed something like the Live Aid scene at the end of the movie, that movie isn't getting even in the conversation for best picture in my book. And yet it is. And, you know, I, I understand I could understand the appeal of it and why people have really enjoyed it and why people might even nominate it for best picture. Cause, because it, it is a, it, it is an entertaining film, right? It's an enjoyable film to go and watch, but when everything boils down to it, I'm just, it was disgusting to see it win in the moment. And I, and that sounds like really visceral and like repulsive, but I don't necessarily mean it that way. It's just like 2018 was such a good year in movies. And when you look at the category of black Panther, black Klansman, if Beale street could talk and a star is born, you know, we haven't talked about if Bill Street could talk yet on the, on, on the podcast, and we'll be talking about that on, uh, hopefully on, an epi- on the next episode, actually. But in, in my mind, literally every other movie on this list is better than Bohemian Rhapsody. And I think even if you pop over to the musical or comedy category and the five movies over there, again, I think are all better than Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, actually, take that back, Vice is in the other category, so that's not true. But, you know, four of those five movies are, are better than Bohemian Rhapsody. And so it was really disappointing to see Bohemian Rhapsody win. But I'm hopeful that, like you said, given the backlash, and I know that the Oscar voters follow you, Scott, on Twitter really closely. So I think they're going to hear this message loud and clear that, you know, the popular the popular vote here is, is not Bohemian Rhapsody, I don't think, to win. You know, even people who enjoyed the film aren't going to bat for it in terms of it winning an Oscar, right? So I'm hoping that a movie like A Star is Born, like The Favorite, um, you know, like Black Klansman, like Black Panther, like Beale Street, can outpunch Bohemian Rhapsody when it comes to uh, the actual Oscar voting, which of course hasn't happened yet. The, the nominations voting happened uh, this week, but but you know when the ultimate voting does happen, I'm, I'm really hoping that all those movies can can punch a little bit harder than Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, hey, I mean they could learn a lot from following me on Twitter. That's all I got to say. But but yeah, I mean I agree. I mean I think that like you said, every movie that was nominated in the the big categories except for Vice. Uh, is better than Bohemian Rhapsody. So it's really just kind of discouraging to see it win and really just not fair to a lot of the other filmmakers, you know, who made far better films this year. But again, you know, these awards only mean so much after years of losing their credibility. And, you know, to their credit, the Oscars have, I mean, at least last year, sort of showed a tendency to go away from picking the crowd-pleasing, you know, stuff necessarily. They went for a more experimental film like The Shape of Water as their uh, best picture winner. So, you know, that would seem to suggest turning away from movies like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and and even Green Book as well. Um, And, you know, maybe towards something like uh, Black Panther even or Black Klansman. Um, I think, you know, those films are certainly still very much in the race um, as we move towards Oscar season. Yeah, and that, that's heartening, right? That, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear movies that are more experimental. I mean, it, it, we'll talk again, we'll talk about all these things in just a moment because we're just getting started with our conversation here. But, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping for these other movies that, I mean, honestly got shut out here at the Globes. Um, I, you know, most of them, I th- if not all of them, I thought were better than the ones who won a bunch of awards. So I'm hoping, here, here's the hoping that uh, the Oscars spread the love around with the with the movies that I thought were actually the best movies of the year. Because, you know, as much as I like Green Book, and I know I liked it more than you, and kind of as we shift conversation here, I, I also don't think it's, it was worthy of, of three award wins necessarily. And I think Mahershala Ali is great. He's probably the one who I think should win uh, 
the Oscar for supporting actor. Ultimately, you know, I, I can make a good argument for Richard E. Grant as well, I think. But if, if that was the award that Green Book won, I, I, I could sleep easy uh, on February 24th or whatever the day of the Oscars is. Uh, and similarly speaking, to kind of wrap up and put a bow on Bohemian Rhapsody, if Bohemian Rhapsody is going to win an award, I, I'm hoping that it's best actor for Remy Malik. even though, again, I think that there is another candidate who, or two or three, that I would pick over him maybe. But at least that feels like a more defensible argument than best picture. If Bohemian Rhapsody has to win an award, I hope it's best live action short for the uh, live aid scene and nothing else. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you about Green Book, I think. Uh, Mahershala Ali absolutely have no problem with him winning. Um, but we'll get into, you know, I guess, I guess we'll get to, to Green Book here in a second, but I, I definitely take some issue with the other two awards that it took. Yeah. Out. So why don't we just go ahead and jump here into, into Green Book. Obviously we already talked about how it won best motion, motion picture, musical or comedy. It also, uh, won best supporting actor, uh, in a motion picture for, of course, Mahershala Ali, what we were just talking about. But it also won Best Screenplay for for it, and you know, beating out the likes of Roma, The Favorite, If Bill Street Could Talk, and Vice. And you know, again, I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say it's the worst in this category because I think Vice is the worst in this category. But I, I really would have liked to seen something like The Favorite or a Bill Street when when of these five movies. Now, personally, I I don't know if these would be my five picks, and if I could come up with one that was a better screenplay. Of course, at the Oscars, you have two categories for screenplays here. So there's going to be two opportunities to win. I believe that this is an original screenplay. So this would be, you know, in a category like with, with Roma or the favorite. So pretty much these movies, actually, I think, I guess Beale, Beale street would be an adapted screenplay, but the rest of these are original screenplays to my knowledge. Right. Or, or is green book based off a book? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's certainly based off a true story, but yeah, I don't know whether it, it falls in the original or adapted. Uh, just checking here now. I think I believe it, it is in the uh, original screenplay category. So yeah, it, it's something like that where like, you know, I, I really feel like the favorite or Beale Street should have been the winner last Sunday night. And I'm hoping that, it, you know, in the original screenplay category, if, if you take out Beale Street here, which is an adapted screenplay, like I mentioned, I'm really something like the favorite, you know, if the favorite's going to win an award, I understand that Olivia Coleman took home Best Actress in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. Uh, I'm hoping that again, Glenn Close takes that award home at the Oscars for best for best motion uh, best actress. And so, if they are going to spread the awards around, I'm hoping that they can spread uh, the favorite to the best original screenplay category. Yeah, I mean, look, I enjoyed Green Book as well, but I think to award the screenplay of this movie is honestly just very re- reductive. I mean, we talked about how. Okay, maybe you know this movie is a good movie to come out in 2018 because it strips racism down to its essentials and you know really lays it out there pretty straightforward, pretty obvious fashion for everyone to see. But I think for that same reason, it does it's not worthy of any uh, screenplay Oscars. You know, it's not pushing the narrative forward uh, when we're talking about racism. It's not doing what a movie like Black Klansman uh, was able to do. Um, and so I think it's pretty crazy to award the screenplay, um, which is a pretty cut and dry, uh, you know, formulaic screenplay that of the of the type that we have seen in the past, and especially stacked up against extremely original movies like The Favorite. And I mean, Roma. You know, you look at Roma. Maybe the screenplay isn't the the you know strongest element of the yeah. film, but it's still better. 
screenplay for Green Book, I think, in terms of what it accomplishes. And even, you know, the fact that it is more minimal Mm -hmm. is, I mean, is that's that should count for just as much as, you know, a film that has a lot of dialogue, like The Favorite, for example. I mean, I think the fact that Cuaron is able to accomplish what he does with less dialogue, you know, with less on the page in terms of, you know, spoken words, I think, you know, that should be considered when you're thinking about screenplay as well. And I mean, you know, again, many of the best screenplays weren't even nominated. You know, Can You Ever Forgive Me wasn't in there, which I would have loved to see nominated. And, you know, going forward, I'd really like to see like the Critics' Choice Awards, which I was watching just before we started recording this. The screenplay awards went to First Reformed and If Beale Street Could Talk. So, I mean, those are those are great examples of, you know, very original, um, you know, movies that are pushing a dialogue forward and not sort of keeping us in the same place like Green Book is. Yeah, I I agree. I I think that as much as I love Roma, I would, I don't know if, if the screenplay category is where I'd want this movie to be recognized. I mean, sweet, you know, if if it's going to take home five or six Oscars, I'm not going to sit here and complain because it's an amazing movie. It's one of the best made films of the year easily, even if it isn't my number one film. And, And I can recognize that and I would be overjoyed to see this rake in Oscars. That being said, I don't, think it's the best screenplay of the year and in fact i might even disagree and say i think green book might actually be a better screenplay i mean just in terms of screenplay, i don't think either of these movies should be winning awards because you're right some of the best movies you know bill street is a great one again an adapted screenplay that's a that's a one i think black clansman to your point another great adapted screenplay i think these are all movies that should be well within uh like nomination range especially for two separate categories at the oscars and i'm really hoping that something like that will will take center stage again and honestly it wouldn't even surprise me if with the backlash on green book something like green book screenplay doesn't doesn't even get nominated at the oscars that being said again there's two categories so i think there's a pretty good chance that it does but in the original screenplay category for example i'd love something like eighth grade to get a nomination there i'd love something like a quiet place absolutely yeah you know tully so things that are like more creative uh in the screenplay category and like the narrative that it's crafting, right? So like the favorite, eighth grade, you know, a quiet place, Tully. How about Spider-Verse? Why not? I, I mean, again, I'm not sure the screenplay is what is what that, and that would be an adapted screenplay anyway, because it's coming from comic books, I believe. But I could be wrong about that. But still. Yeah, anyway, but like in the adapted screenplay category, you're absolutely right. Can you ever forgive me? Black Klansmen, Widows, even. You know, A Star is Born, probably going to get a screenplay nod, right? Like, I, I, I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Boy, Boy Erased. Right, like boy, like beautiful boy. There's all of these. I think are very. Uh, leave no trace. Like the wife. Like the list goes on. There's so many great screenplays from this year, and I'm not sure that uh, the Globes did a very good job of of capturing them. Like, can I argue with these nominations? No, I can understand why they were not. Like, why these five movies in particular were nominated. But to to award to reward Green Book, again, Mahershala Ali totally deserving of that supporting actor. Uh, even if I wouldn't necessarily vote for him if I were vote. That being said, like that's got to be the category for me where I'd want it to be rewarded and not that. But we already started talking about Roma. I think of Roma as kind of the third big winner of the night. It's actually, you know, of the two movies we've already talked about, there's only one other movie that won more than one award, and that was Roma. And it won for Best Director for Alfonso Cuaron, and it won for Best Foreign Language Film. I do want to note that it wasn't eligible for Best Picture uh, in either category of the Best Picture categories because of the rules that the Golden Globes take which i think are silly thankfully those rules aren't in effect at the oscars so roma will be eligible for best picture of the oscars and i think it's right up there in the conversation with best pictures of the, of the year and i was very pleased uh to see it to see it win both of these awards at the golden globes last week 
Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that we were talking about. We were talking about how it had been a good show, you know, up until that that last uh, you know stage of the of the award show. The fact that Alfonso Cuarón did take home this award for best director, which I think was kind of up in the air. I mean, certainly we expected uh, Roma to win best foreign film. That's not a surprise at all. But uh, you know, Alfonso Cuarón winning best director uh, was certainly not a given. But I think it was highly deserved. Um, as we talked about, you know, when we reviewed Roma, um, just the incredible amount of detail and, uh, you know, breathtaking visual storytelling that he brings to this movie, uh, is absolutely worthy of winning this award. And I hope he will win it as well at the Oscars. Cause I think, uh, it's an ingenious, uh, d- directorial job. Um, and, you know, just, uh, you know, on a more personal note to see, a guy win this award for, you know, writing this movie about his life that he's probably been working on for a long time. I mean, that is his passion project, you know, was his passion project um, is, you know, pretty inspiring to see uh, that not only was he able to, to get it down on paper, get it on, on the screen, but that he was awarded at one of, uh, you know, the highest award shows for the way in which he was able to express his own story. It's got to feel amazing for him. Uh, and again, it's, you know, it's kind of inspiring to watch for, uh, you know, all of us viewers out there. So, yeah, thrilled to see Roma win. And I agree. I mean, I think it's very much in contention for Best Picture at the Oscars. I think it's it's probably in the top three or four right now, you'd have to say. Yeah. When you when you take into account the backlash that the two again, you already pointed out the two movies that won here at the Globes. You got to say Roma was probably already in the mix for like the top five uh, of the Best Picture category at the Oscars. And then uh, that I think having these two kind of fall a couple of spots due to the the reception that they've received after winning this award, it, it only benefits Roma. And I, I just can't echo your sentiment more about Corone winning Best Director. It wasn't a given. And to see him win it was probably the high point of the night for me. I mean, there's one other moment that, you know, we'll talk about maybe a, a little bit later that was also a high point of the night for me. But there was nothing that made me happier. I'd have to say, because it's such a passion project. The way someone actually described it that I was listening to last week, uh, another critic was saying that, you know, it, it makes sense for Quan to win this, to win this award because he is the star uh, of Roma. It's not, I mean, as, as good as the Elitza Aparicio and the rest of the cast are in their minimalist performance, to your point, it's ultimately Corone who you come to see when you see this movie, right? It, it's Corone that you that you watch when you watch every aspect of this movie, because he poured his heart and soul into every part of it. He did the cinematography, you know, he did everything for this movie and he should get rewarded for it. In my opinion. Completely agree. Awesome. Yeah. So I think that kind of wraps up the, the real winners of, of the night in the movie category, Scott, you know, we don't really follow TV as much. And if anything, I use the globes as a, me- as a measuring stick for what TV and what, you know, mini series I should be watching. Uh, and, and that's kind of how I used them last night, but there were a couple of big winners in the TV category. They did a pretty good job of spreading the awards around, but there were two, uh, series that won multiple awards last weekend. And the first was, uh, American crime story season two. So of course you and I both love the first season of this anthology series that chronicled the people versus OJ Simpson trial. And this one, the second series chronicles the assassination of Jenny Versace. And this took home two awards. I believe it was. The, the two awards, the first was for, not for best television series drama, because I think it's technically a limited series, right? But it won best actor for Darren Chris, uh, who plays uh, Andrew Kuenanen, I think the the assassin, I believe. He's the assassin. Yeah. yeah, and then it also won best miniseries, right? Yeah, it won best miniseries or television film. 
Scott, I don't know if you've seen this film. It's now made it to the top of my list for when it does come out on Netflix later this month. I don't know. You, you tell me. Have you seen this? Well, I watched a couple episodes, and it just really didn't have the spark of um, the People versus O.J. Simpson for me. But, you know, obviously, Ryan Murphy has this anthology series cooking, and when the next, you know, cycle comes around, when when the next season is, which I think they were going to do one on, like, the Patty Hearst kidnapping or something. I'm not sure, but... Whenever that does come out, I'll definitely give it a shot. But as far as Johnny Versace, I'm not sure if this has really inspired me to go back and watch it. Because like I said, I did give it a chance and didn't have the same spark for me. Yeah, so it's, uh, they might be have, have a season in the works that's the Patty Hearst kidnapping. But I believe that my understanding is the next series has been announced and it's going to be about the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. So Katrina, that's right. I remember so, that now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I don't know if they already have more series beyond uh, the next one kind of in in the cooker but i know that the post katrina uh will be the next story they tell i'm unclear to me exactly what story they're gonna be telling for or or if they might take an approach that's a little bit different than the first two series but uh you know this whether or not i haven't seen it yet but i do plan on watching it but you know whether or not this had the same spark and is as powerful as that first series was because you know that's one of my favorite seasons of television in the last decade uh i I do want to check this one out because you know, someone like Darren Chris, and there are a couple other actors that caught my eye in the series that, that got me interested. You know, uh, Penelope Cruz is in this, I believe, and Edgar Ramirez plays uh, Jenny Versace. Um, so, so, you know, I, I'm here for it, and I, I will check it out when it comes to Netflix. That being said, there was a bunch of other stuff that, that you know, was nominated and, and won awards last weekend that got me interested as well. In fact, you know, I've already, it, it's a short series, but a very English scandal, which saw Ben Wishaw won for his uh, supporting actor performance as Norman Joseph slash Norman Scott. And I, I watched that just this past week because it's so short. You know, I liked it, didn't love it, but it was an interesting, I just kind of love this this time of year when I learned about all those series that I should have been following the whole time and then start watching them. It's pretty fun. Yeah, and on the same note, I've been checking out Killing Eve and I've really enjoyed the first three episodes of the series. So I, I it's something that had been on my list, but, you know, seeing Sandra Oh win for Best Actress, you know, sort of, spurred me on to be like, okay, let's, let's sit down and start watching this. And I'm glad I have so far. Yeah, that's on my list as well. I even saw Netflix after the awards show last week saying, Hey, you should go check out this series series on Hulu. Cause it's great, which is, that's kind of an, yeah, even though it's on Hulu. Yeah. yeah. That's like, it, I thought that was a really nice touch coming from, from Netflix and you know, it, as nice as it is, you know, I, they probably do understand they're going to win brownie points for doing something like that. But, uh, I, I like it when, when people play nice with each other. <laughs> Yeah, and the other big winner, which I, I honestly, I got to say, Scott, I'm not that interested in checking it out just because it's not, it's, I don't think it's my thing. The other big winner of the night was in the, in the TV category was uh, The Kaminsky Method, which saw wins for Michael Douglas for Best uh, Actor, or Best, best yeah, Best Actor in a Television Series, Musical or Comedy, and then it also won Best Musical or Comedy Television Series. Scott, again, not sure if you've checked this one out yourself. I'm not even sure what network it's on now that I'm thinking about it. Is it... Netflix. It's on Netflix, yeah. So Michael Douglas, an actor that can that can uh, pull me into something, but I'm just not sure if I'm interested in, the, in this TV show or not. But it did win two awards, Scott. What did you think of it? Yeah, you know, I wasn't thrilled with this for a couple of reasons. I haven't seen the show, but first of all, you know, I, I can't imagine how anything can beat the marvelous Mrs. Maisel at this point. And I mean, you know, was obviously, you know, I would have probably would have burned my house down if Rachel Brosnahan hadn't won, <laughs> even though she did win last. year. 100% deserving of taking it home for the second uh, year in a row. I think she's like the first person to do it since I can't remember who they said. Maybe it was Deborah Messing back in like the original run of Will and Grace. I'm not sure. But um, 
But still, very, you know, very impressive and very well deserved by Rachel Brosnahan. But, you know, the other thing that doesn't thrill me about Kaminsky Method is that, you know, this show is from Chuck Lorre, who has produced stuff like Two and a Half Men, The Big Bang Theory, some of the lamest, most safe and straightforward, uh, boring sitcoms of the last decade. Uh, And, you know, maybe with this being on Netflix, he's allowed to cut loose a little bit more, you know, as opposed to CBS, which is where he usually works. Um, but you know, it's not particularly encouraging to, you know, see him continue to win for, you know, at least in the past, putting out uninspiring, unoriginal television. Yeah. I haven't seen this. I probably won't. It is pretty short, so it has a chance to grab me, I guess, but you're right. And, and, And that being said, he doesn't normally work with talent to be really honest. He doesn't work with talent like Michael Douglas or Alan Arkin. And so it might be the fact that this series has Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin that one, it got nominated and won the award at all. But two, the fact that Chuck Lorre is being taken more seriously, right? Like you normally only see Chuck Lorre at an award show like the Emmys. You would hardly ever see him at the Golden Globes. And at least in my, at least from what I can remember. And if Alan Arkin's face throughout the night is any metric of his enjoyment of the show, uh, I don't know if I'll be checking it out because he looked thoroughly uh, unhappy about being at the Golden Globes last night or sorry, last week. Yeah. He had some he hasn't looked that happy since he was on that road trip in Little Miss Sunshine. Like I remember when the, I can't remember if it, if it was when it probably was when it won Best uh, TV Show Musical or or Comedy. But when they all got up after they won because they were hugging each other, he like you can tell that he was asking whoever it was that went up there and, and accepted the award. I don't know if it was Chuck Lorre or who it was, but they, he was like asking them if he had to come up there, and then he just shook his head no, <laughs> 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 which was one of the funniest parts of the night for me. But I think yeah. that probably wraps up the the who are the winners. And then I want to quickly go through the list of losers, one of which to start off with here, I think we're totally fine with being a loser, and that's Vice. Vice only won for Christian Bale, though it was nominated for six different awards. It had the most nominations of any movie at the Golden Globes. And uh, apparently they have Satan to thank for their Golden Globe win, no less, uh, if you believe Christian Bale, which I don't know. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. That's for people to decide. But Vice did not did not have any weight in other categories. Yeah, I have to say that while Christian Bale might have gotten a good laugh out of that line, he had there were not one but two different uh, tweets from people which really just completely dunked on him for this line. The first one being from David Ehrlich, the film critic at IndieWire, who tweeted, "I'm glad that someone finally admitted that Satan was responsible for Vice." Um, which, you know, obviously couldn't agree more. And the other one, which I sent to you, was actually from Liz Cheney, Dick's daughter, uh, went and dug up an article about Christian Bale assaulting his, or being at least being arrested for assaulting his his uh, wife and, and daughter, I believe it was. Yeah. Or mother and daughter or something. Yeah. I think it was a sister, actually. Yeah. And, and commented, yeah, I guess Satan inspired him to do that, too. So not sure if Christian Bale really got the last laugh on this one. Um, but, you know, certainly not disappointed to see Vice shut out, although I think it's honestly a crime against humanity that it was even nominated for anything. I mean, may, you know, Christian Bale being nominated, okay, fine. But anything else, especially screenplay and best director, like, are you serious? I mean, I liked I thought Amy Adams was, was good enough to get a nomination. Although, did she actually, wait, did she not get nominated? Oh, supporting actress. Sorry, I was looking in the wrong category. Yeah, she got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, I, I yeah. Sure. Scott, I know that you didn't like this film, but I, I was fine with Amy Adams getting nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I think maybe if it was a Best Supporting Actress musical or comedy, but I think there were so many stronger candidates when you since this was, you know, this covered the full range of films. I mean, 
Elizabeth Debicki, one of our favorites, completely shut out. And I, you know, would have loved to see her replace, you know, Claire Foy, you know, Amy Adams, you know, a couple of the nominees, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, she deserved to be in there. Hey, I, I loved the comment from Claire Foy on the red carpet about saying she probably didn't deserve being nominated for Best Sport Actors. I know she was just being humble, but I couldn't agree with her more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, yeah. I mean, it, it may sound harsh, but it's probably true. And hey, she, she's the one who said it, not us. Yeah, I mean, again, I, 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 can, I can live with her getting nominated, but she's not wrong. Yeah, okay, so, the, you know, the other losers that we care a little bit more about, the biggest one has to be A Star Is Born, right? So com- completely shut out besides Best Original Song, which it most certainly deserved, in my opinion. But it received, I believe it was five total nominations, and it only won for Best Original Song. And Scott, having rewatched this film last night, I gotta say, it's outrageous to me that this doesn't win any other awards. Yeah, I think, you know, you could probably take away, though, that for me, this is still the front runner to win Best Picture, even though it was shut out for all these awards. I think this is the kind of um, it's an old fashioned film, but it's also modern in another way and and well loved by both audiences and critics. So I think you know it's it's good fodder for a Best Picture winner. But yeah, you know it 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 is surprising to see it shut out. You know, Lady Gaga as well, who you know maybe two months ago you would have thought. She's absolutely the front runner. She's got this locked up um, and she lost to Glenn Close, who now you might have to point to Glenn Close as the front runner, which I know, you know, that that thrills you. And personally, I would I think Glenn Close was had a better performance than Lady Gaga as well. So certainly not disappointed to see that as well. But it is shocking. You know, maybe this is the movie this year, which sort of gets the Oscar hangover where, uh, you know, it comes out and everyone's all on fire for it. But it comes out early on in the Oscar season. And by the time, you know, we actually get to the Oscars, uh, everyone's sort of forgotten about it or put it on the back burner a little bit. Yeah. We'll see what happens. I don't, I really don't think it's going to be this movie. I mean, to your point, again, there's been backlash around it, not winning awards. And to be honest, I, I, I ultimately would be happy either way. It's one of those few times where I really would be happy either way. If either, uh, Glenn Close or Lady Gaga won the Oscar because I think they're both they're both worthy and deserving. And in another year, they probably could very easily uh, each, each one of them could win in another year. So they're both in that sense. I'll be a that's a win win for me in that category. But you know, if I look down the list and how I kind of want things to shake out the Oscars, I think I want this film to win Best Picture. I want Roma to win Foreign Language. I want Corone to win Director. I'd be happy. Again, I would be happy if it won Best Picture. But realistically. Like, I think A Star is Born is where I'd point to for Best Picture for this year. And, and Scott, I, I don't know whether you agree with that or not, and we'll debate that on another show. But for me, it this movie is just really, really, really good. And this is coming from someone who, Scott, as I said, when we review this on the podcast, this is someone, coming from someone who did not think I, I did not think I was going to like this movie when I, when I went into the theater. And I liked it the first time I watched it, and I loved it even more the second time. It, it's just such a good film, and, and I was really disappointed that it only won for Best Original Song. Yeah, I mean, kind of supports my theory, I guess, that sometimes the best movies, the ones you enjoy the most, are the ones which, you know, you're surprised by. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where your expectations are set absolutely will affect your uh, perception of the movie. I, I totally agree. So another big loser, I think there's kind of three more movies that are that were big losers. The first being Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, it, it didn't receive as many nominations as A Star is Born, but it, it was shut out even more. It didn't win a single award. I actually rewatched this movie to, a little bit earlier today. And and feel more confident in my review that it, it's a really good half to there's there's a really good 
hour to hour and 15 minutes of this movie. But the problem is the other half of it isn't all that great. But to me, it's really surprising that it, it, this doesn't take home any awards. Although, granted, I don't know what I would point to for it to win if, if, it, if it's not winning Best Original Song. Yeah, I mean, maybe Emily Blunt, but I think, honestly, this is... I, I mean, I loved the movie. It was in my top 20 for the year, but I think this is sort of the token musical nominee, right? Like This is the, great, this is the greatest showman of this year. Right, that's, that's what I was going to say, the greatest showman. And unless it's a movie like La La Land, um, you know, it's probably not going to be the movie that ultimately, uh, you know, takes home the awards. Although, you know, I, I wouldn't have been surprised to see Emily Blunt win. But, you know, it, it was a big loser, but not a huge shock to me. Yeah, I'd love to get the final vote count on that category, What where she was relative to Olivia Colman. She might have been close, but I'm not sure. Uh, I don't see Emily Blunt winning at the Oscars, though, when the, when, the, when the category is consolidated and she has to go up against, you know, Melissa McCarthy, Glenn Close, and Lady Gaga, as well as Olivia Colman, obviously. So, yeah, certainly, uh, you know, Glenn Close, Lady Gaga, and Olivia Colman, I think, are the frontrunners. Unfortunately, I think... People have kind of forgotten about Melissa McCarthy. Like she's she, she very well may get nominated, but I I mean I don't hear anyone talking about her as having a chance to win, which is disappointing to me because it it might be my favorite of the bunch. I think that's a totally defensible argument. I, not not necessarily my pick for that category, but it's another situation where hey, I think I'd be happy too if Melissa McCarthy won because her performance is spectacular, and you don't expect that kind of performance from her, and you don't see it all that often. So the final two films here, I think we can almost bunch them together in that this is a, it was an unfortunate theme of the Oscars is that, you know, as much as, you know, the the Me Too movement kind of swept through the Oscars last year, and the, I think it was in particular the Time's Up movement last year at the Oscars with Oprah's speech at all there, I really think that this year's Golden Globes lacked a little bit of diversity, and you can see that in the lack of awards for Black Klansmen and Black Panther, and just a general lack of Black and female nominations outside, of course, the female specific categories you just didn't see much representation there last weekend and then even in the awards where people were nominated they weren't winning yeah i mean i think this is where you may see a difference at the oscars just because the oscars have pushed a little bit more for diversity in you know since they had the the oscars so white uh scandal back a few years ago when chris rock hosted um you know maybe I would say definitely Black Panther and Black Klansmen are, are stronger candidates. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, Black Klansmen to me, absolutely, a des, you know, deserved strong consideration for that screenplay award. And, you know, for it to see it lose out the Green Book, obviously very discouraging. Spike Lee, certainly worthy of a best director. I mean, I would not have been, certainly I wanted Quaron to win, but, um, and, you know, there is diversity there with Quaron mm-hmm. winning. You know, with Spike Lee, I, I would not have been very disappointed to see Spike Lee win either because I think he did a great job with Black Klansman. Black Panther, you know, I, I wasn't a, as huge of a fan of it as a lot of people w- were. But, you know, I, I do think uh, maybe some of the technical Oscars, we will see it recognized. You know, that's one thing which we don't have at the Golden Globes is technical awards really beyond music. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, Mahershala Ali and Regina King did win for Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress, so I, I can't say there was diversity completely lacking. That being said, it just felt like two movies that were centered around diversity uh, really got shut out here. Again, Beale Street and Green Book both winning, um, and there is there is diversity there. And so I, I, I can't completely uh, run roughshod over the, over the globes on that front. But it was disappointing for two kind of landmark race-focused movies. I would say the two race-focused movies of the year. I would say I would put Green Book and Beale Street kind of 
the tier down from like the the mainstream uh, race focused movies of the year, just because Bill well, One, I think uh, Bill Street and Green Book didn't reach the sort of mainstream share of mind that the other two movies did. But uh, again, I was disappointed they got shut out. And it's, it's tough though. There was, I mean, to, to your, this is a comment that you made on social media on Letterboxd. It's just like, this is a great year in movies, right? It's tough. And, and so it's disappointing when there are awards that are won by people who just feel a little bit less deserving because there's so much talent in this year in film and, and so many people who should be recognized for that. It, it's always frustrating when, when even one award goes the way of someone who just feels significantly less deserving than a category full of really rich talent. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that's just for me where I have to just sit back and remind myself that this doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of thing. Everybody knows, like, like when the Lego movie doesn't get nominated, yeah, I'm still going to be out on the street corner with my megaphone yelling about it. But at the end of the day, everybody knows the Lego movie was the best animated movie of 2014. And, you know, the fact that it didn't get nominated for an Oscar doesn't take anything away from that. That's true. That's true. All right, last big loser of the night was, I think, HBO as a network. They got some not they got a significant number of nominations, but unfortunately, neither Barry nor Sharp Objects took home any awards. Scott, I don't know if you if you watched either of these. I know Sharp Objects is on my short list of t- TV shows slash miniseries to watch. But sorry, I have to cut in. I believe Sharp Objects did win, right? P- Patricia Clarkson won. Oh shoot, that's right. I take it back. Patricia Clarkson did win. Now I'm looking dumb. But that being said, I was <laughs> it, it got shut out in you know the best actress category for. For Amy Adams, and then also uh, it lost Best Limited Series to uh, Johnny Versace, who you—I mean, you've already said you were not as impressed with as the previous as the previous series for Crime Story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I I, I also didn't couldn't really get into Sharp Objects, even though I tried. Uh, but I, I honestly, I did think that was going to be the big winner in the uh, uh, limited series miniseries category because just because I thought it had sort of the same audience and same sort of appeal as Big Little Lies, which obviously did clean up um, at the Golden Globes. So I, I was surprised to, to see Sharp, sharp Objects, uh, you know, not win. But I think, you know, to your point, I, th- I think HBO simply just didn't have a lot of, um, you know, fish in the sea this year. Like, well, they it really Westworld. was just sort of... They had Westworld season two, which, I mean, barely got nominations. Like, but- Tandy Newton got nominated, but I don't know if it got nominated for anything else. Yeah, but you know, when you think about their big hitters, Game of Thrones, stuff like that, what you know, we're not in season, I guess, to be nominated for uh, the Golden Globe. So I don't, I, I think they will be back probably with you know, we have the final season of Game of Thrones starting here soon. Uh, but yeah, just wasn't really their night, I guess. Yeah, it was not. But I apologize to Patricia Clarkson; she did win. I only watched one episode of Sharp Objects so far, and you can tell like Patricia Clarkson. It has one of those roles where she, if she makes the most of it, she can totally crush it. Um, but yeah, she she won and probably deserving. Although Alex Borstein from Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I'm, I'm surprised you haven't stood up and got on your got on your soapbox again for Miss Maisel. Uh, did did you think that she should have been winning this award? I mean, certainly, I think she's outstanding. Like alongside Rachel Brosnahan, I do love Patricia Clarkson as an actress, though. Uh, I always think she does great work. So good to see her honored, even if you know. Maybe I wouldn't have picked the role over Alex Borstein, so not as much of a disappointment as it would have been if Rachel Brosnahan had not won. Yeah, that's fair enough. All right, so some other notable stuff that we want to hit before we do wrap up our Golden Globes discussion. I think one of the other highlights of the night for me, uh, beyond um, beyond Alfonso Cuaron winning for Best Director, was, of course, the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse win for Best Animated Feature, Scott. This is the first award 
on on the stream of the show and i mean it got both of us kind of off our feet and onto twitter yeah i mean this was the one moment in the night where like when they said the winner i yelled out i was like yes because i really did not think that it was going to win i thought that they were going to go for the safe choice of the Incredibles too. And honestly, I still think that Incredibles is going to win the Oscars, even though Spider-Verse is trending up. I think that's just how the Oscars roll. I like after what they did to the Lego movie, I will never believe that the Oscars will pick a movie as hip and edgy and weird and original as Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I think they'll still go for Incredibles too. but Hey, I was thrilled to see Spider-Verse win because it's by far the best animated movie of the year. Right. Well, when we just when and when we do this show for the Oscars in March, we will uh, we will both be complaining that Spider Verse doesn't win if indeed The Incredibles two does win that Oscar. All right. Another another good notable uh, win I think is that even though we were talking about best supporting actress category and Elizabeth Debicki getting shut out of it. That being said, Regina King, if Bill Street could talk, taking home best supporting actress. Scott, I know that we are saving our thoughts on Beale Street for another episode where we'll be talking about the movie in full, including Regina King's performance, but. Uh, her speech, I think, if we're going to talk about anything, her speech was was probably what has locked her up as the Oscar favorite, right? Like, her speech was one of the best of the night. Yeah, it was a great speech, and it's a great performance as well. I mean, I think she's definitely, you know, when I talked earlier about who would Elizabeth Debicki get in over there, I definitely would not bump Regina King out of that category. She's very deserving of being in there. Again, maybe not my number one favorite in terms of supporting actress, but, um, you know, I, I was... Glad to see her win and glad to see her, you know, using her platform in a in a positive way during her speech. Agreed. I think another another person who used her platform for positivity was Glenn Close. We've already briefly touched on this win already, but this is one of the highlights of the night for me as well. And that's just simply because uh, how much I like Glenn Close from her volume of work. And I know people complain all the time. Uh, on Twitter about, oh, this sh- there should never be a volume of, of work Oscar. You should vote on the movie and the movie alone and their performance alone in each year in each film. That being said, one, I think this film and this performance is worthy of a win. And two, in addition, her body of work is excellent. And the fact that she hasn't won uh, an award for Best Actress before, or, or just in general a performance award, means that it made it all the sweeter for me. And I'm, I'm sure for her as well. And you could see that in her speech. I mean, she was basically in tears about how happy she was about the win. Yeah, and I mean it was a surprise. It was a surprise to most people too, who thought Lady Gaga would take it, and no one was more surprised. It seemed than Glenn Close herself, who you know was visibly shocked for several seconds when her name was read out as the winner. Um, so yeah, great performance by her. Uh, again, I, I you know I, I lean towards more towards Melissa McCarthy, but uh, I won't quibble with this one too much again because her body of work is so strong. Um, and then finally, kind of last notable thing that I want to talk about here, and I think this is one of your Big shout out to the night. Justin Hurwitz winning for best original score. Yes. Hallelujah to this. And I have to say that, man, Taylor Swift presenting him with this award was, I feel like that was all I wanted from life was to see, uh, you know, one legend presenting another legend with this award. Um, it is my favorite. Although, I mean, I do love I, the Nicholas Bertel score from Beale Street, which we'll talk about. But to me, this first man score is in a whole nother league and it will be one of my biggest disappointments if it doesn't win at the Oscars. But the good news is I think it's trending up right now and probably is the front runner you'd have to say at this point. Well, two things. I think uh, Justin Hurwitz first off only 33 years old. You're going to hear many plenty of scores from him in the future, especially as long as he's attached to Damien Chazelle, which seems he seems pretty attached to the hip at this point. 
And then second, I, I'd have to uh, agree, Beale Street, a, as a contender for this award category, it, we talked last year, this time last year, about, I believe it was Phantom Thread, where, move, where the music was just such an integral part of the movie. There's hardly any minutes in the movie that didn't have music in the background of it. And I think that the Beale Street is another example where the music is such an integral part to the experience of watching it. And it's interwoven so beautifully with the narrative that you can, I think you can make a very legitimate argument for, for that score also being a major contender here. That being said, Justin Hurwitz, a deserving winner. And I, I agree that he's probably the front runner. Yeah. I mean, the Beale Street score, sometimes you even forget it's, it's there. I mean, kind of in the way that uh, Johnny Greenwood's score for Phantom Thread was like, as you pointed out, um, but I think that speaks to its power uh, for sure. All right, two more things, and then we're done with the Golden Globes. First, I know, Scott, that you were not a fan of Andy Samberg and Sandra O's oh hosting ability at the Globes. Would you like to give your thoughts? Well, look, again, new year, new me. I try to focus on the positive. So I'll say I think Andy Samberg's a really funny guy. I think I really enjoyed some of his work uh, with The Lonely Island. I think he just has a very funny comedic presence. And like I said, you're three episodes deep into Killing Eve, and I'm really enjoying it. And I think Sandra Oh is great. Um, but with that being said, I think that this uh, was a swing and a miss uh, for their hosting uh, gig. Kind of a strange choice to throw these two people together in the first place. Um, and it didn't go much better than the uh, James Franco and Hathaway debacle at the Oscars, to be honest. Um, I laughed maybe twice the whole night. Uh, a lot of the jokes just seemed really out of place. Um, and they certainly tried their hardest, which is probably something you can't say about James Franco at the Oscars. Um, but unfortunately, their their comedic energy could only take the uh, the very poor uh, uh, jokes that they had on paper. It could only take them so far. Uh, so honestly, I think the Oscars is going to be great without a host um, because uh, – I haven't been impressed, honestly, in a while by a host really since Chris Rock hosted the Oscars probably was the last time I remember coming away thinking that the host of a major award show really did a great job. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, we'll see what it's like. It's, it's definitely going to be different not having a host, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a bad thing. All right, Scott, to wrap up our discussion, what's your one best moment from the Golden Globes? Oh, man, that's a good question. Uh, I guess I got to go with uh, the combination of... Uh, there was about a 30-minute stretch where we first had Jeff Bridges winning the Cecil B. DeMille Award, something that we didn't really touch on, and and you know rightfully so because it's not uh, doesn't have anything to do with 2018. But amazing actor, uh, great person, um, getting this award. I, I mean, I can't think of a more deserving winner of this Lifetime Achievement Award. And he gave just a, a wonderful, positive speech uh, that, for once, you know, I, I think as much has been accomplished. With some of the speeches in the past that have, have steered more uh, into the political realm, I think he kind of uh, just sort of united everyone with a, a very positive, good vibe speech, which I appreciated. And then following that up immediately with Alfonso Cuarón's win for Best Director, you know, I was really uh, feeling good after watching, you know, this series of events at the Golden Globe. So that whole stretch would be my my top moments of the night. Yeah, I hear that. I think for me, it, it has to be not just who won the award for me, but it's also just like their reaction to winning. And there was a, there was a similar stretch to what you're describing where I believe Sandra O oh won for killing Eve. And she was literally in tears. She clearly did not expect to win the award and to have her parents there and her speak to her parents was, I, although I can understand why some people might not like that for me, it was just really heartwarming. 
and then to have Glenn Close just a little while later win for Best Actress in a, in a motion picture drama, and to see her almost in tears with how surprised and happy she was is just those are the moments of the award show. You're like, all right, you know, none of this really matters, but man, it's really awesome to see how how much it means to the people who have worked really really hard and no, don't necessarily expect these sort of awards. Whereas you have some winners who kind of expect it. They're maybe a little bit more stoic and that's not to fault them for being stoic. Like uh, I'm sure Alfonso Cron was just as happy and just as thrilled to win the award as, as Glenn Close was, but he's just a more stoic kind of guy. And I just really loved the, that kind of sequence of events there. It was, it was really heartwarming is the best way I can describe it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Scott, I think that will just about do it for our golden. We're not going to put a score on it. <laughs> no, we're not going to put a score on it. Uh, thankfully, okay. thankfully, I don't even know what I would say to that, but when we come back, Scott has devised some more movie questions for us to answer, just like on this episode last year. And then we'll be wrapping things up with some news. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, I'm going to turn things over to you now to walk us through the questions we'll be answering in the 2019 edition of your uh, movie questions. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm glad that you asked me to do this again, you know, because I think our show, you know, we focus so much on the present and what's going on, you know, what movies are out now and what movies, what what's going on in the world of movie news now that I think we don't get a lot of opportunities um, to talk about, you know, some of our favorite movies of the past. Um, and so, that you know, this is one good opportunity to do that by just, uh, you know, asking a few fun questions about some of your favorite uh, things in the movies, moments, performances, um, scenes, stuff like that. Um, and so we're, we'll just get right into it. I have eight questions for us uh, this time around. And we're going to start out with the question that we sort of did last year. We talked about last year, we talked about our, our underappreciated actor that we thought, you know, deserve more attention going into 2018. You went with Michael B. Jordan, who obviously, you know, had a great 2018 between Black Panther and Creed II. Um, and I went with Micah Monroe, who didn't have the greatest year. Um, but I still think her time will come. But uh, along the same lines, who is your actor or actress to watch in 2019? Yeah, Scott, I spent a lot of time thinking about this because I'm I was so pleased with myself. Uh, that I, I picked Michael B. Jordan this time last year and how well that paid off for me. I think that I, I kind of narrowed it down to a couple and, and I, I did ultimately come up with one, although I have a, I have another one I, I might want to mention just at the end. But the one that I ultimately decided on is Zazie Beetz. So we saw her in a movie like, Dead, like Deadpool 2 earlier this year and she's on the docket, I think, for a couple movies this year and, I, and I'm hoping that this can be the year that she really takes off. I loved her in Deadpool 2. I thought she was one of the best parts of that movie and I just think that she's really, really talented and we haven't seen the full range of what she has to offer. I want to say that I will say that compared to my pick last year I think Michael B. Jordan is not wasn't that crazy of a pick uh, this time last year. He had established himself in several movies. I mean, he'd been in, in the first Creed already. He'd done Fruitvale Station. You know, he had done several movies where he was well received critically Zazie Beetz hasn't done that yet so I'm going out a little bit more on a limb for her but I think that she might really deliver this year I was trying to remember what exactly she was going to be in as, as I pulled it up here but Scott just while I do that what what do you think of this pick from me yeah I mean 
certainly, you know, all I've seen her into this point is Deadpool 2, but I enjoyed her in Deadpool 2. And yes, she was getting a ton of buzz for her performance in Deadpool 2. So I think this is definitely a strong choice. You know, I don't know what she slated to be in in 2000 mm-hmm. either, but I think just the fact that uh, she did get such strong buzz for really, you know, not a huge, she, she's not in a ton of Deadpool too. She really, you know, sort of pops up a little over halfway through and, and, you know, is in maybe 20, 25 minutes of the movie. So the fact that she, you know, made that big of an impact, I think says a lot about her promise going forward. Yeah, she has. So she has a couple movies. Uh, actually, she has like three or four movies that, that she has in her 2019 filmography. But the ones that, that or at least the one that caught my eye that say, oh, this could be a real breakout performance for her is that she's been cast in a, in a major supporting role for the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix later this year. So she's Sophie Dumond in that movie, which is the Joker's love interest in the film. So I think that that could be really a really strong breakout, even more of a breakout performance for her than with um, than even even with Deadpool two last year. And then she also have a movie, movie has a movie called Wounds, which she's in a supporting role in, which is a psychological horror film with Army Hammer and Dakota Johnson alongside her, kind of in the lead roles. And then she also has a movie called. Uh, meet me in a happy place, which I don't know anything about and doesn't even have a Wikipedia page right now. So uh, she has a couple movies that she, that are going to be coming out. Obviously I'm not sure whether wounds or meet me in a happy place are going to be big blockbuster releases and how, how, you know, how much, how well they're going to do one and also whatever, what those performances are going to be like, but she's going to get attention for the Joker movie regardless. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a high profile project for sure. Um, for my pick, I went with somebody who I think for this past year, you know, there, there are a lot of good candidates for this award over the past year, but I think that uh, he would get the Michael Stuhlbarg award for this year for being in the most really good movies. He was in three of the, the best movies of 2018, uh, those being Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, Widows, and had maybe, even though he's only in it for about 10 minutes, had maybe the best scene in If Beale Street Could Talk, which we'll talk about next week. And that is Brian Tyree Henry, who he's, you know, he's been around a while. He's mainly known for his stage work. He's in his mid 30s. So he's not, you know, a young actor in the way that the people who we've tapped for this uh, question in the past is. But I think he's he really made a name for himself in three movies that he was excellent in all of them. You know, he played he was the dad in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and had some great voice work in that. He played uh, Jamal Manning in widows and which you know definitely more of a major role there and i think you know he did a great job as well in that movie and i think he has a very commanding screen presence and in 2019 he's going to be in three films one of which his most high profile of which probably is uh the child's play remake of course you know the Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. horror film about chucky uh the doll uh is being remade uh and brian tyree henry has been cast as the detective um and strangely enough, he's also been cast as the detective in another movie, uh, The Woman in the Window, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, this is Joe Wright, who directed uh, Atonement and Pride and Prejudice and some more sort of costume dramas. But this seems to be a more uh, modern, uh, you know, contemporary thriller. Um, and it stars Amy Adams. Uh, and it has sort of a, uh, a rear window style plot, it seems like. 
um, uh, where Amy Adams is playing this like agoraphobe who who thinks she witnesses a crime from her apartment. Gary Oldman and Julianne Moore, Wyatt Russell uh, are among the others who are tapped to be in this movie. So I think this is something that uh, I am really looking forward to coming out sort of in the back half of 2019. And finally, she's going to. He is also going to be in a, uh, a comedy that the name's escaping me at the moment, but it's a Melissa McCarthy uh, comedy, sci-fi comedy, which... Um, Super Intelligence is the name of yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. But it's directed by uh, and written by some of the people who have done some of Melissa McCarthy's uh, sort of uh, gross-out comedies that have not interested me in the past. So I'm not sure how much I'm looking forward to this movie, but interestingly, it is tapped for a... Uh, a a Christmas release. Um, so maybe, you know, the studio knows something we don't on this one, but either way, I think it's going to be a great year for Brian Tyree Henry. Um, it, it's concerning because it could be the Holmes and Watson of next year. That's true. It, it could, it could very well be that uh, as well, but I don't know if the expectations will be as high going into that, but I think Brian Tyree Henry will have a, you know, a good 2019 either way coming off what you'd have to say is a stellar 2018. Yeah, it absolutely was a stellar year. He was a name that I considered throwing out as well, so I'm glad we didn't pick the same person. Um, I think that Brian, absolutely, Brian Tyree Henry had a fantastic year. You didn't even mention some of the other movies he was in. He was in White Boy Rick and Hotel Artemis as well, so he had a busy 2018. Obviously, we didn't talk about either of those movies, and we didn't see either of those movies, but just wanted to call it that he was in a few other films uh, this past year. But yeah, great pick, Scott. Great pick. Yeah, he's mainly known for his TV role in Atlanta, I think, which he's also gotten some award nominations for that. But looking forward to seeing him in movies. Um, yeah, he's been nominated for a uh, primetime Emmy, I think, for, yeah. for Atlanta. There you go. Uh, OK, we'll move on now to uh, a fun question, um, which will probably involve some spoilers. So, you know, once, <laughs> once we say our answers, maybe if you haven't seen the movies we're talking about, um you know, skip ahead to the next question. But what's your favorite plot twist in a movie? I think I think this is a good question to ask with uh, with M. Night Shyamalan's glass coming up here. You know, no one more known for their plot twist than Shyamalan. So what is your favorite plot twist in the film? Yeah, Scott. So I have an honorable mention for this because I think it's just such a classic that I wanted to bring it up. And it's not the only time that this honorable mention will come. It'll be honorably mentioned for another question as well. And that's Psycho. What a great plot twist in Psycho, uh, especially I think, I mean, back in 1960, what you, you don't see the the right hook coming that that film offers at the end of the movie. And but I'll leave it at that. We don't uh, for the for those who haven't seen it and you know want to add Psycho to your uh, arsenal of movies that you've seen. It has a great you know plot twist ending at it. But then for me and Scott, you could probably even guess that this is going to be my favorite plot twist ending of all time, just because I I talk about this movie so much and it's one of my favorite of all time. And that's The Departed, right? The the plot twist. The, the multiple twists that the end of that movie takes. The elevator, you get, yeah. You get, I mean, right. I think that's the one that everyone points to as the elevator scene. But then also right at the end, right at the end of the movie, there's another plot twist after the elevator scene. And I just love that movie so much. It's one of my favorites, if not my favorite movie of all time. And uh, the plot twists at the end of this movie in the last 10, 15 minutes are no exception as to why I think so highly of this movie. Yeah, no, definitely a, a great choice. I, I don't have many bad words to say about that movie at all. Uh, an outstanding work from, from Martin Scorsese. My pick, I almost feel bad picking it because I know that you haven't seen this movie. I know that probably most people listening to this podcast are not going to have seen this movie. <laughs> so I'm going to have to spoil it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and that's a movie from 2003 called Swimming Pool. It is a French thriller from uh, the director Francois Ozone, who's a, a pretty famous name, uh, it, you know, if you follow foreign film at all. Um, 
But this movie is the story of a, a elderly, well, older, we'll say older, um, mystery novelist played by Charlotte Rampling, who um, is suffering from severe writer's block and uh, is encouraged by her um, publisher to go off to his sort of country house in, I believe it's in Italy, um, and, you know, get some time alone and hopefully – uh, you know, be able to churn out her next book. She's written a very popular series and, and is stalling out on the next entry in the series. Um, so she goes out to this villa, you know, that he lives in in Italy and is there alone for a couple of days. And then his daughter shows up unexpectedly. Um, and the daughter is played by Ludwig Sagne. And she is this basically the complete antithesis to this, you know, sort of buttoned up uh, stoic English woman that that Charlotte Rampling is. She is lying out by the the swimming pool with no clothes on and bringing men home and, you know, doing every kind of drug imaginable in the house at night. And there, this sort of war of attrition develops between her and Charlotte Rampling that is really um, great to watch. But eventually, you know, as you would expect, they, they, they both learn something from each other. And at the end of the movie, Charlotte Rampling has decided to leave her publisher um, and she goes back to his office, tells him that she's leaving. You know, she's going to write, she's going to publish her next book on her own. And in the final scene of the movie, as she's leaving the um, the office where the publisher works, the secretary for the publisher says, "Oh, sir, your daughter is here." And we look to the door and we see this thirteen-year-old girl, probably, um, you know, who obviously isn't the person who showed up at the house and, and who we have been led to believe it, it was his daughter the entire time. Uh, and the movie just sort of ends there with that realization, um, you know, having been revealed to you. And, and it forces you to ask a lot of questions about, you know, is what you really is what you saw really real or was it, you know, th was this her projecting what she was writing, um, in, you know, into reality, but uh, a really fascinating movie, very Hitchcockian and, even though I just spoiled it for you, if you listen to it, it's absolutely still worth seeing. Um, I'm a big fan of the movie. Yeah, and just to add my, I, we, I know we didn't actually discuss the de, the Departed spoiler, but just to, so I can actually spoil a movie for one of our listeners, uh, Bruce Willis is dead at the end of Sixth Sense. Just so everyone knows. <laughs> dead gummit. Okay, we'll move on to our next question now. This is one of my favorites, maybe my favorite of the bunch. Um, What's a movie line that you always quote in everyday conversation? Okay, so I wasn't sure if this was a, just a movie in general or a specific movie line. So I only picked a movie in general, and now I need to um, now to actually think of which line I quote all the time because there's just so many. But either one works. Yeah, I mean, there's just like everything in Mean Girls, right? Like everything in Mean Girls is quotable. I quote it all the time, much to the chagrin of my coworkers. I think. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, there's just so many that are applicable. Uh, I remember in college, I used to. Uh, do the four for you, Glenn Coco. You go, Glenn Coco, one a lot. That's a, that's a classic. Stop trying to make fetch happen is still one that I use pretty commonly. Um, but yeah, I mean, the list goes on. I could I could go on and on. There's just so many great quotes from that movie. I, I particularly love. I think one of the underrated one is um, seeing a teacher outside of school is like seeing a dog and its hind legs. A great a great quote. Um, exactly like a, like a lot. I mean, I think that applies to beyond just teachers as well. Just people that you're used to seeing in one setting, and you see another, and you're like, that's a dog and its hind legs yeah, right there. Uh, but there's just the the list of quotes in this movie that I've quoted over the years, um, like I'm not, I'm not a regular mom. I want to be a cool mom, which is Amy Poehler, which is uh, Regina George's mom in the movie. There's just so many good lines. Yeah. One of my favorite underrated ones is, uh, Oh my God, Danny DeVito. I love your work. Um, 
that's a classic as well. But yeah, I mean, that movie's full of them. One of the most quotable movies of our generation, for sure. So I have a few, you know, individual lines that I pick that I like to say a lot. Uh, maybe the one that I say the most is from the classic Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Probably fitting since the uh, the screenwriter William Goldman just passed away last year. Um, but there's a classic scene where Butch and Sundance blow up a train and the explosion is just extremely over the top. Way more, they use way more dynamite than they really needed. Um, and as a result, they are forced to flee and like barely get away from the explosion themselves safe. And as they're laying there, as the dust clears, uh, Robert Redford looks back at Paul Newman and says, well, you think you use enough dynamite there, Butch? Uh, and that's, you know, a classic one that I always like to say that it applies to a lot of situations, you know, when somebody exaggerates or goes over the top or whatever. Uh, another one I like is from Risky Business with Tom Cruise. Great scene where a college interviewer shows up at his house unexpectedly while he's having a huge house party. Of course, you know, the plot of the movie being that his parents have left him at home. Um, while they have gone out of town and tries to interview Tom Cruise, you know, while the party is going on. he He's for Stanford or, or Northwestern. I can't remember. It, there's a really prestigious school that he's trying to go to, but uh, it goes very poorly, you know, when the, the recruiter, the college interviewer sees what's going on um, and, and, you know, is exposed to what's going on in the party. And after the re- uh, interviewer leaves, uh, Re- Rebecca DeMornay, who of course plays Tom Cruise's love interest in the movie, um, says to him, you know, well, how did it go? And he just looks at the camera and goes, well, looks like University of Illinois. Um, and, you know, that's a great one to just, because you get asked that question all the time, right? Like you, you take an exam or you you have a job interview and it's like, well, how did it go? Well, look, and if it goes poorly, I, I always try to respond with, uh, well, it looks like University of Illinois because it, I, I really can't do it justice. Honestly, it's Tom Cruise's delivery of the line, which is one of the things that makes it so great, but uh, still a really quotable line. And both of those are, are a couple of my favorites for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Those are very, very, both very good movies and very memorable lines from it. Yeah. Okay. We'll move on now. And Scott, coming up a little bit later in the year, uh, about halfway through the year, um, we're going to be doing something which I'm excited about, and that's our best of the decade um, countdown top 10 movies of the 2010s since, you know, 2019 does mark the end of this decade uh, in, in film. Uh, And as sort of a teaser for that, um, I thought I'd ask, what is your favorite Oscar winning performance of the last decade? So of the 2010s, Um, a lot of good ones to choose from. There are a lot of good ones to choose from at the same time. I never, there wasn't really one that I immediately looked at and was like, this is it. This is the winner. And I think that speaks to the fact that like, either my particular, particularly my favorite performances from each year wasn't necessarily the Oscar winner. I actually was going through the nominations list and I found some more compelling performances that I would have chosen. But since we are picking winners to me, it's Jennifer Lawrence's role in silver linings playbook. Uh, I absolutely love this film. I believe this film was 2012. Maybe it was 2011. I'm not, I'm not, yeah, yeah, 2012. But I I think that Jennifer Lawrence's performance is is one of her strongest. And, you know, maybe she's, fallen a bit off in terms of the quality of movie that she's been in recently. Of course, her performances are still very strong, but I mean, Silver Linings Playbook is when, uh, granted, she's still young, right? Like she's, she's going to make plenty of more fantastic movies, but there was a string of a few years where she was in some of the best movies each year and producing some of the best performances. And this was the top, the top of the top of that list for me and Silver Linings Playbook, one of my favorite rom-coms, Jennifer Lawrence, one of my favorite actresses and a very deserving win in 2012. Yeah, it was definitely high up there on the list for me as well. Definitely thought about picking it. You know, I, I also love the movie. 
Um, and, you know, she's one of the main reasons why, although I think, you know, the whole cast is outstanding. I agree with you that I think that, you know, a lot of times my best performance um, from the year doesn't, doesn't get awarded. You know, maybe it is nominated. Looking back, you know, a few, at a few in past years, like Michael Keaton, obviously, one that I always point to, very disappointed that he did not win for Birdman. Yeah, that was one of the ones that I was looking looking for. And I, then I remembered, oh, right, <laughs> um, Theory of Everything won. Instead, Eddie Redmayne won that year. Sheesh. Um, yeah, Eddie, I mean, Ethan Hawke in Boyhood, uh, Michael Shannon in Nocturnal Animals, all some of my favorites um, that were all nominated, but, you know, ultimately didn't win. But I did go with, you know, a great performance, um, definitely high on the list for me. Um, nominated or not, and that is J.K. Simmons' role in Whiplash as the drill instructor, I guess you could call him, because um, that's really what he is, the the sort of tyrannical uh, drum instructor who Miles Teller is, ha- has to learn the hard way from. Uh, and I, I think J.K. Simmons' performance is so great because, yes, you have you know these amazing scenes where he's just raging and going off and just full of fury, but at the same time... Uh, we we learn so much about his character as well and why he is the way that he is. Um, and, you know, it, it it's not that he's, uh, you know, a, a sad, angry man, uh, you know, although that may be part of it. Um, but, you know, he has a real reason behind, there's a real method behind his madness. And it's an incredibly three-dimensional character that maybe you wouldn't expect to see just superficially when you see trailers and stuff for the movie. You, you might, you know, see this is one note, this is just J.K. Simmons' full of fury the whole time, but that's really not how the movie uh, plays out. And I think, you know, in addition to that being credit to J.K. Simmons, also credit to Damien Chazelle, obviously, for um, the screenplay. So, yeah, definitely love J.K. Simmons um, in any movie, but this is definitely one of his best and and glad to see him uh, take home the the long overdue award um, when he did win for that. Yeah, great performance. I knew it was one of your favorite. I thought that you might pick it. So um, it's very worthy, very worthy. Yeah. Okay. So let's continue on with a a similar question, but you know, maybe looking at from a from a higher level, what is the best year for movies since two thousand? So what year had the most really good movies for you? Man, you know, when you initially said this, I'm like 2018, maybe? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's definitely, I, I almost feel like I can't pick 2018 just because it's the, it is like the most fresh recent year. But there are so many good, like I was looking back over my, uh, just all my movies ranked today. And like 35 of those movies are really good. Like, honestly, like there's so many good movies from this from this past year. 2017, also a really good year for film. I think the the back half of the year especially was very loaded. I'm thinking like I, Tanya, Phantom Thread, Three Billboards, etc. Like tons of really great movies from last year. If I'm picking if I'm picking a less recent year though, I think 2014 is probably the year that I'm ultimately going to go with. I think 2014 was a really great year for movies. It, it, you know, just running off the top of my head, I, I mean, 2014 was Birdman. I think right, like. Boyhood, mm-hmm. Whiplash, Gone Girl, Foxcatcher, Inherent Vice, John Wick, Guardians of the Galaxy, Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler The Babadook, Interstellar. What'd you say? Sorry. It follows. It follows. Absolutely. Uh, Snowpiercer. I don't know if you saw that one. Captain America. The Lego Movie. Yeah, the Lego Movie. X Men: Days of Future Past. The Winter Soldier from Captain the Captain America. Edge of Tomorrow. Lived I Repeat. Um, the Grand Budapest Hotel. 
Locke with Tom Hardy. Like, there's just so many great movies from this year. And honestly, I don't know five years from now if I'm going to think it's better than 2018. Um, but it was such a good year. Oh, that's right. Like Sel- Selma was that year as well. But yeah, the the point is a lot of great movies from 2014. And and I think that you know, I'm sure I think you'll probably pick a different year. But maybe you you will pick this year because it's Whiplash and Boyhood and Birdman are this year. Well, I, well. So normally I would try to be more original and pick a different year, but to me this is the clear correct answer here. I mean, I think you can look at a couple other years. I mean, tw- 2007 was a really good year as well. And 2005 was also a good year. It was on it was on my short yeah. list. But 2014 was unbelievably stacked. I mean, all of those movies that you named off there, like I could make a best, I could make a good, really good best of the decade list just from 2014 movies. And, you know, I I venture to say, you know, I I have been workshopping a list already a little bit that probably four or five movies from 2014 will be in my top 20, if not top 10. So, yeah, I mean, an incredible year for movies. And I think, you know, to your point, I think a lot of them will stand the stand the test of time. I mean, it's been five years and, and, you know, a lot of these movies have not lost their shine at all for me. Um, Birdman is definitely one of my favorite films of the decade. I mean, we'll talk about, again, we'll have a full episode on this, but that is such a good movie, such a good movie, but not the deserving best picture from that year. Um, but we can have beef later. Um, a side note, what is Inyaritu up to these days? Has he done anything since the Revenant? No, that was his last work. I, and I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard anything about him doing anything this year. So who knows? maybe he's working on his Roma or something. Honestly, seriously, I love him as a director. I'm sad that he hasn't done anything since uh, since The Revenant. Yeah. OK, well, we'll move on now to the next question. Um, favorite final shot of a movie? What you know, endings. We talk about how endings are hard to do sometimes. What is a final shot that um, left you extremely satisfied uh, from a film? Yeah, this wasn't even this is another one that I didn't find that hard. Although I do want to mention Annihilation from this year. This is not my pick, but I did like the ending of Annihilation. And on a similar note, though, because it's this particular flavor of ending that really grabs my attention and kind of makes me smirk a little bit. That kind of shitting grin, so to speak. Uh, And that's Inception, the ending, the final shot of Inception with the dreidel on the table. Uh, Classic, classic, classic ending classic people losing their absolute minds about it on Twitter saying it was like a horrible ending, but that's the kind of ending that I absolutely love Scott. Yeah. I mean, I saw it twice in theaters and I remember the second time when I went and I'd been, been with some people who hadn't uh, seen it yet. And I just, I couldn't wait to see what their reaction was going to be at the end. And yeah, I mean, it's, even if you don't love the movie, it's, you you definitely, uh, you definitely get shook by that ending. I think it's fair to say. Um, although, you know, there are certainly a lot of theories on there out there on the internet about how to interpret it. But yeah, I mean, Christopher Nolan in general, I think does great endings. I mean, the dark Knight. Whew, talk about an amazing ending that with that monologue of, of Gary Oldman, um, as, as Batman rides off on his, uh, motorcycle into the night, um, doesn't get any better than that. But, uh, for my pick, I went with one of my favorite movies of all time, my favorite horror movie of all time, uh, and that is The Blair Witch Project. Um, this movie uh, obviously uh, you know, builds really slowly, and it's known for the fact that you never see the Blair Witch. You never see the, the titular creature for the entire movie, which some people love it, some people hate it. I think, you know, to me, what, what is scariest is always the thing that you can't see, and what, once, once you're able to see it, it it loses a lot of uh, what makes it scary. And so I think Blair Witch did that in- extremely well. 
But uh, the final shot of this movie is is as haunting as it gets. Um, of course, you know, we find out early in the movie during the sort of interview segment that when, when Heather and Josh and Mike, the film crew, are, are interviewing the, the people of Burkittsville about the Blair Witch mythology and and one man starts telling a story of, of Rustin Parr, who was, you know, this hermit who uh, was rumored to have taken some, you know, children, groups of children up to his cabin <coughs> and he would make, you know, most of them stand in the corner with their back to the wall while he killed the others. And then, you know, he would take one from the wall, kill him. And then, you know, that was how he he performed his his murders. Um, and so, you know, we then we get into the movie. They're exploring the woods. Finally, at the end of the movie, Mike has gone missing or Josh has gone missing, rather. And they have tracked Heather and Mike have tracked him to um, this cabin that they that sort of appears out of nowhere in the woods. And, you know, they go into the house. They're yelling his name. Of course, one detail which I I noticed recently when I was watching this movie uh, that is is an incredible detail, honestly, um, and really adds to the haunting feel of this last scene is that so there are two cameras when they go into the house because each Mike and Heather have a camera. And we first see Mike and he he goes down like his camera goes down when he encounters the Blair Witch and we see his camera go to the ground. And then we switch over to Heather's camera, but she has the sound off on her camera. So we're actually seeing Heather's camera. We're actually seeing, you know, what Heather is seeing, but we're hearing her screams coming from the dropped camera that Mike dropped, which is 20 feet away. So while you're seeing Heather's, what Heather is seeing, and you know that it's, it's Heather's, you know, camera because she's the only one left, um, you're hearing her screams from like far away and it really just gives an eerier feel to it. But then of course, Heather proceeds into the room and, looks into the corner of the room and there we see Josh um, standing with his back to the corner, just like Rustin Parr um, did to the children. And the next thing we see is the camera hit the ground and that's the final shot of the movie. Um, And, you know, say what you want. It makes some people mad, I think, just because they want to see the Blair Witch or they're expecting more of a slam bang ending. But um, it's about as scary as it gets for me. Yeah, I mean, I, Scott, I know you, you hate me for this, but I haven't seen The Blair Witch Project because it's not my flavor of film. But the more, honestly, the more I hear you talk about it, the closer I am to watching it. Well, I'm just going to keep talking about it then because we got to get you there. Yeah. Did, have, did you like any or see any of the like sequels that it spawned? So I haven't seen the immediate sequel that came out a year afterwards called Book of Shadows, which is apparently terrible. <laughs> um, but I did, I did see the reboot that they did, I guess, a couple of years ago. And not a huge fan. It, it really lacked the uh, like raw, unpolished, like hyper realistic quality of the first movie that made, you know, when it came out was such a sensation because so many people thought it was actually real, like thought that it, it had actually happened, like legitimately. Um, so much so that like, you know, Heather, the, the actress who played Heather had to go on like a lot of talk shows and like be like, hey, you know, I'm alive. I'm fine. Um and I think that's really what makes the movie so haunting is that realistic feel and why I like found footage films in general. So, yeah, not not a huge fan of the sequels, but it had a, a lot. They had a lot to live up to. for sure. Yeah, I'm just reading a, a snippet of or, or looking at the Wikipedia page for Book of Shadows, which is the sequel that you talked about being uh, terrible. Mm-hmm. It has a 14 on Rotten Tomatoes and a Metacritic score of 15, which indicates, according Jeez. to uh, Metacritic, quote, overwhelmingly disliked. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it was a product of, you know, like I, like I was talking about, 
the original was such a sensation, was such a huge hit. I mean, you know, the movie was made for nothing and made millions. I mean, a, a huge financial success um, that, you know, one year later, they wanted to turn around and try to capitalize on that. And as a result, it, they probably rushed the movie um, and, you know, it, it didn't have what made the original so special. Yeah, I'm just looking at this. Its budget was $60,000 and it made $250 million. That's insane. I know. I mean, it's got to be one of the biggest takes of all time, like in terms of, you know, as opposed to what what the movie cost, you know, compared to what they made. It's It's got to be up there on the list. Like it, it it's it's sort of the one of the poster children for how to make a low budget movie succeed. And Blumhouse has built their built their house on that. So, yeah. Really? And also, to know, I just love how the Wikipedia page for Blair Witch Project doesn't have the cast on it. That's great. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they never did anything else. I don't, you know, they, they obviously weren't big time actors or anything, but they do a great job in the movie. But yeah, I mean, I, I love it too, just because it's, it's spawned like all, you know, all this mythology, like, you know, the Blair Witch didn't exist before this movie. Uh, but now like in internet communities and stuff, there's like, people have written all of these, like, you know, all, all of this mythology surrounding the, the Blair Witch. And it's really fascinating. And uh, I love how, you know, just a $60,000 movie can, Oh, actually, so now that I'm, I'm reading a little bit more. It's actually because each of these people, Heather, Michael, and Josh, they're it's their real names. And Josh Leonard has done a lot of stuff since then. The other two have, haven't done anything. He did Unsane last year. And he's married to Allison Pill. That's that's amazing. I love that. Hey, Josh from the Blair. Wow, you're blowing my mind. Yeah, dude, right he now. has been in a lot of movies. Well, there you go. And he he actually survived. In case anyone was still worried. Yeah, um, I mean, probably nothing yeah. of the same acclaim, but he's he's done a lot. Well, good for him. Um, certainly, he'll always have Blair Witch, if nothing it's else. It's the movie but, that started him, so there you go. Um, okay, we'll move on now to uh, sort of along the same lines, you know. Really great segue into this question, but what is the scariest scene in a movie? This is a really hard one for me, Scott. And we were t- kind of talking off air about this, and I, I had been thinking about this question a little bit differently than you had. And I really love what you're about to talk about here in just, just a few moments, because I think I even might agree with you. That that's one of the scariest uh scenes in a film that I, that I've seen. Um, but I'm going to go with something different just to be original there. I don't know. Did you ever see L the, um, Elizabeth Hooper? Yeah. There's a couple scenes in that movie that, uh, her ever of the home invasion that not every single one of them, obviously, because by the end of the film, it takes a thematic turn. I think, I think by the end, but I'm thinking of like the, the second time it happens that her home is invaded in the, in the film. It's just a really scary sequence. Cause she knows that someone's in the house but doesn't know where he's at. And it's, and it's not trying to lean. I mean, it is kind of a psychological horror thriller, but it's not really trying to lean very hard into the horror elements. And to your point about what you're about to talk about, it's almost because it's not trying to be a horror film, right? That it's so scary. And I just really love, love that. I, I really love that movie. I think it's very underrated. Um, and that particular scene is, is one that I remember being very scary. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think home invasion scenes for me are always scary just because you know, what I find scary in this to get into my choice as well is, you know, not supernatural stuff that can never actually happen. I mean, you know, we, we can debate it if you want, but I, I'm not going to say that ghosts don't exist, but I have um, no problem not you know, debating this with you, Scott. <laughs> I've never seen one. Let's put it that way. But that stuff isn't scary to me because I, you know, it can't actually happen. Um, but stuff that it could happen to anyone, that's what scares me. And that's why, like, you know, a home invasion, for example, you know, there are plenty of good examples um, of movies with great home invasion scenes. Panic Room, another 
example, David Fincher's movie. Um, but for me, the ultimate, or at least one, you know, from a recent film that just really stuck with me in the theater. And ever since, I, you know, I've never been able to get it out of my mind is from uh, the movie Nocturnal Animals, um, which I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, Michael Shannon's performance. But this is, of course, uh, directed by Tom Ford. Um, it tells sort of this dueling narratives. Um, Amy Adams as, as a, a wife who, who gets uh, a, a book from her ex-husband played by Jake Gyllenhaal um, that, you know, he is a, a, a allegedly dedicated to her. Um, and so we see the one narrative with Amy Adams, you know, who is reading the book and how it affects her in her own life. But then we also see what the narrative of the book is. Uh, and the book is centered around, you know, a road rage uh, sequence that goes on for like, I watched it again recently. I was surprised how long it goes on for. I think that's what makes it so harrowing. It goes on for, you know, 12 to 15 minutes where Jake Gyllenhaal and his family, uh, you know, Isla Fisher is plays his wife. So, um, so it looks so much like Amy Adams. She's literally cast to look like Amy Adams. Yeah. Great, great piece of casting there, but they, uh, you know, they cast her and, and he, you know, he has his daughter as well. And they're, you know, run off the road and the you know, this, this sort of road rage type thing that I feel like happens a lot. You know, you read about this sort of thing happening a lot, but Aaron Taylor Johnson, of course, great performance in the movie, you know, and his band of rednecks sort of run Jake Gyllenhaal off the road. Um, and, you know, they're in the literally the middle of nowhere and basically just begin to terrorize his family. You know, they mess with his car so he can't really go anywhere. At one point, there's a police car that comes driving up and uh, Isla Fisher and the daughter go out in the street and try to like wave it down, but it just goes flying past them. And so, you know, that hopelessness obviously just adds to uh, the feeling of dread throughout this whole scene. But man, it's just scary the way that the scene builds from you know, the simple disagreement between people on the road to, I mean, people might lose their life over this. And that's why to me, it's so scary. And, and, you know, the acting obviously exceptional and a great movie overall, but for me, it never really reaches the visceral impact. The rest of the movie never really matches the visceral impact of, you know, this sequence. Although I do love the movie. Yeah. Another great, another great movie with some fantastic final scenes. I don't know if it's the actual last scene in particular, but I know the last scene of like the novel with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't spoil it for our listeners, but it, I think I really like the end of that movie too. It really sticks with you. Yeah, no, the ending of that movie is great. And it, it you know, it's kind of like the one you talked about earlier with Inception. It's one you want to go talk about with people after you see it um, because, you know, it does leave you with uh, some questions, but in a good way. Absolutely. Um, okay. Well, to our final question, um, you know, I wanted to finish big. Last time, you know, our final question was, what's your favorite movie of all time? Um, and Nero did a little bit for this, obviously, um, but wanted to go big again. So my final question for you, Scott, what is the best action movie of all time? Man, it was so hard not to just say Mission Impossible Fallout. It's such a good action film. It really is. I know that you like Rogue Nation better, but I mean, I'd be happy with picking either of those movies. But if I had to pick a movie that wasn't this year and that wasn't from the Mission Impossible franchise now that I've already mentioned it. To me, it really came down to three films, right? It came down to Skyfall from the from the Bond franchise, The Dark Knight, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And for me, I think I have to go with Raiders of the Lost Ark just because it's such a classic. I love Harrison Ford so, so, so much. 
And I just love this movie. I mean, uh, it's not, it's, it didn't invent the action drama or sorry, the action genre, but man, it's a, it's such a classic Indiana Jones, just such an iconic figure in action movies these days. Um, not just for you know what he can do with a whip, uh, but, but also, you know, bringing, bringing guns to a knife fight. So he can do it all. I would be an idiot to argue with that. It is a classic for uh, a reason. And, you know, you mentioned Harrison Ford. My honorable mention, my runner-up for this, is another film starring Harrison Ford called The Fugitive. Um, oh, such a good movie. Such a good movie. 1993, yeah. So many. I mean, it's it's crazy, too, when you, when you watch The Fugitive nowadays. It holds up so unbelievably well. Like, unlike a lot of action movies from that era. I mean, you know, obviously we've made so many advancements in special effects. But, man, like, those set pieces hold up just as well today as they did back then. The bus crash uh, at the beginning, uh, the parade scene, you know, so many memorable scenes. Um, and it, it holds up incredibly well. In addition to, you know, just the, the cat and mouse drama between Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones is great. But I went with uh, a different film and, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the dark Knight. I, I don't even think of that almost as an action movie. It's more of a crime drama to me um, or else I might've gone with that as my choice. Cause you know, I do love that movie, but I went with a movie, which, like The Fugitive, is from the 90s, and Like The Fugitive holds up unbelievably well to this day. And for sheer originality of its premise, I think, scores a lot of points for me. Uh, and that is from 1994, movie Speed, um, which <laughs> is, of course, set in Los Angeles, the story of a runaway bus um, that if has been, you know, planted, uh, has, has a bomb planted on it by... Dennis Hopper playing a, a great villain. Um, and if the bus drops below 60 miles an hour, <laughs> then the bomb will explode. Um, and we have Keanu Reeves as Jack Travis, the uh, uh, LAPD cop on the case, and Sandra Bullock as the uh, ordinary woman who uh, doesn't usually take the bus, but of course happened to take the bus on this particular day and ends up driving the bus um, on its harrowing journey. And, you know, this movie, like I said, the, the premise just sets up so many unbelievable sequences um, because you really do just sit there to yourself thinking, you know, how how could they do this? Like if this was if this actually happened, how would they be able to, you know, keep the bus going at such a high enough speed to where they're not going to crash or, you know, run off the road or whatever? And, it, you know, it leads to some amazing moments. They have to jump a broken part of the, the interstate at one point. Another, you know, classic is where they are driving through like a, a neighborhood or something and a woman is pushing a baby stroller and they're unable to stop and collide with the baby stroller. And we, But we find out that the stroller simply has cans in it, um, which is weird, but um, works great in the movie um, because you have that horrifying moment where you think they've just hit a child <clears throat> and it turns out to just be cans. But Keanu Reeves is great in this movie. Um, I, I am someone who will beat the drum for Keanu Reeves. He gets a lot of hate, but I think um, he does, you know, a, some things very well. And play an action hero is obviously one of them. I mean, between this movie, The Matrix and John Wick, like the dude has churned out some of the most memorable action movies of the past 25, 30 years. Um, and, you know, it, it says a lot that. This movie has Sandra Bullock in it, and I'm still picking it as the best action movie of all time. Um, it does have Jeff Daniels, though. I know you like Jeff Daniels. Of course, yeah. he He's great as well as um, as Keanu Reeves' partner. But, 
yeah, this movie has it all, holds up to this day, and is is another classic of the genre that uh, I'll watch anytime. Absolutely. Great film. I feel like I need to rewatch it. It's about that time. I haven't seen it in so long. It, it is a movie that definitely holds up. All right. I think that's, I hope you all enjoyed those. Was it eight, eight questions we had? I know we dove deep on them. I really enjoyed it. And I hope we can make this an, an annual experience for, for both of us and our listeners, as long as you can keep coming up with questions, of course. Of course. All right. So we'll wrap things up today with some news. We have quite a few to run through because apparently it's been a busy week in Hollywood. Uh, first up, Venom 2, a sequel to Venom, has been confirmed. Tom Hardy returning, Michelle Williams returning. I don't think Riz Ahmed's going to be returning. But uh, will the other William ones. Will Harrelson be returning? Yeah, he will. Yeah, he'll be the main villain for sure. Oh, okay. Um, uh, sorry, I didn't realize that was a joke. Yes, he, he, I mean, he was only in the post credit scene as like he's going to be the villain in the next movie for sure. But yeah, Woody Harrelson will be in it. It's, it looks like what will be. I was talking with a couple of my friends who follow comic book movies a little bit more closely uh, than the two of us, Scott. And I'm just very surprised that this is, I mean, it made, it made oodles of money in the international box office, but I'm going to be really surprised if they can keep the next movie at PG 13. And if so, how they possibly have carnage as their villain in the movie. Cause he's known for being, you know, kind of your R rated, I mean, almost X rated level of, of violence and gore in the comics. So we'll see what they're able to turn out because I think, this movie being PG-13 is part of the reason why it, made, why it made so much money, even though someone like myself would have much preferred it just to have been R and been a better movie because of it. I mean, hey, they were able to put Carnage in the classic Spider-Man PS1 video game, which I think was only like rated T, maybe even rated E. So I think they can do it. We'll see. They'll figure it out, I'm sure, if they can. Because, uh, I mean, besides Dead, I mean, Deadpool was the first movie that, that proved that you could you know, make, make money on a, a film that's rated R that's a superhero film. Right. And then of course, Logan also made a lot of money in 2017, but it's not, it's still, it's, it, it's still tough to do, right. It's tough to get people into theaters because families are such an important part of these comic book movies. Right. So uh, next bit of news here uh, we have is Netflix is being sued by uh, create your own adventure book publisher over Bandersnatch. Scott, I, I know you've seen Bandersnatch. I haven't, but what are your thoughts on this? I mean, couldn't they just sue like, I mean, I, I guess there's probably more to it than simply the fact that it it's also choose your own adventure. But I was like, couldn't they just sue like every single Choices Matter video game that has come out? This is my thing with Bandersnatch is that I feel like people are, are freaking out about the way that it tells the story with your own choices. But there are so many video games that have told such better stories in this way. Um, and Bandersnatch is just boring. The choices aren't interesting really that you know that they don't force you to make like some really uh tough moral decisions like a lot of you know the telltale games for example do um and yeah the characters aren't engaging at all um i didn't like it at all but uh it's funny to me that that they're getting sued over it um uh, you know something that has been around for what 50 years or so at least 50 years is probably a bit of a stretch, but no, it's been around for a while. I mean, choose your own adventure novels have been a thing for a long time is my point. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, 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 of course, of course. All right. Yeah, I don't really have much more to add than that than it, it seemed silly. I don't know how they'll possibly win that lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to win any sort of fair use lawsuit just because you have to prove like, well, I won't get into intellectual property, but it. Wait, are you, wait, wait, wait. Are you in law school? <laughs> it's very difficult. Let me put it that way. Yeah, no. You, you essentially. Uh, I mean, my understanding is that you'd essentially have to be able to show that the public associates the idea of a create your own adventure with your brand. Yeah, and I don't know how they would be able to do that. Yeah, 
anyway, all right, moving on. And what has to be for me the most jaw-dropping bit of news is when I saw John Lasseter was hired as the head of Skydance Animation. And this blew my mind, Scott. I cannot believe that John Lasseter is getting a job six months after leaving Pixar. So what is it about it that shocks you so much? I'm just curious to know. Well, so he left Pixar because he was being accused of like sexually harassing employees. Oh, see, I, I didn't aware that I wasn't aware that he got caught up in that. Okay, well then, yeah, I mean that is shocking. <laughs> yeah, and apparently Skydance consulted the Times Up movement before hiring him, which just cannot possibly be true. Well, <laughs> like, so I mean, were the there's no way? How valid were the accusations? I mean, I guess that's really. I mean, there were like four or five and like female employees yeah. at Pixar who accused him of it. Well, yeah, I mean, what can you say? This is maybe this is one of the reasons why we keep having these problems. I mean, maybe, but it just seems mind boggling to me that like a studio like Skydance, who, yeah, they're not Pixar, they're not Illumination, but they're still a big deal in the, in the animated film universe is hiring I get like, look, they're trying to make, they're trying to become a big player, right? That's why they're hiring John Lasseter, but it's such a bad look. And honestly, like, I'm not saying people can't change and that John Lasseter doesn't doesn't deserve a second chance, maybe, you know, a certain number of years. But six months is not a long time to for for this to like ruminate for him to change, for him to think about what he's done and also like be reformed and, and to so quickly reenter, you know, be a, a top executive level role at an animation studio is is really disappointing. And, you know, I'm not going to I'm I'll reserve judgment on whether or not people should go see Skydance's. Uh, next animated feature that you know he kind of produces, but that's really it's really really disappointing. And you know if people don't like this, they need to vote with their money and show Skydance that they made yeah. a bad decision. Yeah. All right. Uh, in, in good news, I think uh, more so than the last, definitely, Henry Winkler has joined Wes Anderson's next movie, which is called The French Dispatch. Scott uh, Henry Winkler didn't win for Barry at the Golden Globes, or he was in Barry, right? Yeah. What, what, which one was he? Yeah, at? he wanted. The, yeah, yeah, he wanted the Emmys, but not the Golden Globes. Right. He won at the Emmys, not the Golden Globes, but he is joining the French Dispatch. Scott, this gets me pretty excited. One, because it's Wes Anderson's next movie. But two, I like Henry Winkler. Yeah, I mean, this seems like a great combination to me. I'm honestly surprised. I don't think he's been in any of Anderson's films before, but uh, he seems like an actor who uh, would be well suited to Wes Anderson's uh, style of film. And yeah, he's obviously great in everything. Yeah, uh, agreed. Love, love Henry Winkler. But uh, uh, in more movie news and what's coming out a lot sooner than the French Dispatch, we got a trailer for Velvet Buzzsaw, which is coming out later this month on Netflix, Scott, and it's featuring Dan Gilroy in the director's chair, who has directed Nightcrawler and joining him also of Nightcrawler fame and lots of other fame too, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, and you know what? You told me to watch this trailer and I forgot to do it. Um, So unfortunately, I can't comment too much on it. I know, I know. I had one job, but uh, I am excited for the movie. I'm sure the trailer will only confirm that, um, you know, for the reasons you mentioned, Jake Gyllenhaal, one of my favorite actors, and, you know, the combination of him and Dan Gilroy already produced an incredible movie in Nightcrawler, so I'm excited. Yeah, well, we'll skip over that, Scott. I think you're really going to love that trailer when you watch it. Um, It it seems right up. It's psychological horror. I think it's going to be right up your alley. Great. Uh, yeah, next bit of news in what surprised you. And I told you this on, um, I can't remember what day it was that I, that I texted you this, but the Dune reboot, which you didn't even know is happening has, has some casting updates. And that is Stellan Skarsgård, Timothy Chalamet and Dave Bautista will be in this cast with Dennis Villeneuve directing. 
uh, Villeneuve, one of my favorite directors um, in modern times. Obviously, I loved Arrival in 2016. It was my film of that year, and he directed that. He directed Blade Runner 2049 back in, in, in 2017, which I loved. Again, one of my favorite films from that year. And he's one of those directors where doesn't matter what what reviews he's getting, I'm going to go see his films. Yeah, he seems well suited to direct this as well. I mean, the you know this is one of the most beloved sci-fi movies of all, or novels of all time, and it was made into a notoriously unsuccessful movie by a, a great director. David Lynch, but, you know, obviously failed at, at adapting Dune. So I'm, I'm not going to go ahead and say that this is going to be a slam dunk for Villain to Wave. Um, but I think, you know, he, they put it in the right hands and it's time for a reboot of Dune because that Lynch version was 81 or 82, I think. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I, I'm definitely excited to see what Villain to Wave and this cast can produce. Got it. And two last bits of, of news here. One we've already talked about, and that's the fact that Oscars are going hostless, it seems like. Uh, Scott, anything else you want to add about that? Uh, I mean, no, I think it'll be I think it'll be fine. Maybe it'll make it go quicker. Like, sheesh, I, I can't imagine, you know, sitting through another five hour thing. But, uh, you know, anything they can do to cut time, I'm all for. Yeah. And then last bit uh, in a bit of not unfortunate news, but we'll have to wait one week longer for Jordan Peele's next movie, Us, as the release date has been moved back one week to March 22nd. Scott, will will you does does this make you happy that it can just build anticipation for another week, or are you pissed you're going to have to wait a week? Uh, I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter to me one way or the other. I'm going to see it, uh, you know, whenever it comes out. But, I mean, one week is not, not a huge uh, pushback for me. Well, Scott, I was really hoping you'd say that you were going to refuse to see it now that it's been pushed back, but I guess we'll still be reviewing it on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, this this is an outrage, honestly. We some of us have already bought tickets for that weekend. Yeah, what are we going? Are we going to get a refund? What's going to be? <laughs> I need to call. I need to call AMC ASAP on that. That's so, especially since I'm not paying for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Scott. I think that'll just about do it for episode 29 of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with? No, not really, Oscar voters. If you're listening to this, uh, please. Please don't vote for Bohemian Rhapsody. But even more than that, please don't vote for Vice. Um, but yeah, that's that's really my parting words. And and go Vols, number three in the country, three and zero in the conference. All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarvy Dent. Cool. And I can be found at Shelton two zero one three on Twitter as well. And you can also find our podcast, which is at Media Plug Pod. So give us a follow there. We'd love it even more though if you checked us out on Patreon. And that's at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. There are a bunch of different tiers over there, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast. And we'd appreciate it so much, even if you only contributed at the $1 level. Again, that is www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. And you can check it out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcast. And another change for 2019 on Podbean. That's www.podbean.com slash media plug pods or we'd also appreciate it if you rated reviewed subscribed shared all that jazz so that we can continue to reach a much broader audience all right i've said enough we really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies stay tuned later this week for part two of our 2018 in review series where we'll be reviewing season five of the movie trivia schmodown and then we'll be back this time next week with a brand new episode where we'll be reviewing our first new movie of 2019 that's glass along with another awards darling, if Beale Street could talk. For now, however, that's all from us. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.